Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, I wanted us to take a look at our Bible and to look at the Bible from a vantage point that many of us are familiar with and others are not as familiar with uh, the Bible in the way that we have it in the present form. Um, For many of us, we travel to the bookstores and We go and grab a Bible, and uh, we take it home, and we read it, and we enjoy it, and we should. But there's more to the Bible that all Christians should be cognizant of, and we should be comfortable with the ability to explain how we got the Bible and um, how we were able, as as a Christian, universal, uh, Catholic body, were able to come together and contain God's word for us to follow. We have a special guest today to help us unpackage uh, the transmission of the Bible, especially um, in terms of our new international version, uh, how we were able to uh, get that translation. And he's very well equipped to help us answer these questions. Uh, He is uh, a great author as well as a teacher and Uh, He's written books such as How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth, A God to Understand and Use a Bible Version, uh, and he co-wrote it with Gordon Fee, as well as uh, he's done extensive research on the Gospel of Luke. And for today's episode, we wanted to invite and to welcome uh, Dr. Mark Strauss. Dr. Strauss, how are you? Doing well. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation, Perseus. Appreciate it. Thank you for being on Sound Reasoning. And our first question is, uh, the word autographs, what are the New Testament autographs, and uh, why is that important, or should that, why should that be important for believers? Sure. The word, it's a technical term, actually, the autograph. When we say autograph, we think of someone's signature, but that's the technical term with reference to the biblical text refers to the original document. That is, when Matthew wrote his his gospel, for example, he wrote it um, probably on a papyrus, and that first original copy is what we call the autograph, the author's own actual copy. So when Paul wrote a letter, the, the original copy, let's say, that went to the, the church at Rome would have been the autograph. Um, we, we don't have, and it's not surprising, but we don't have any of the autographs of the original, um, of, of the original text, and that's because um, paper, papyrus, papyri parchment wears out over time. 90%, maybe 99% of what's been written in the past has just disappeared, turned to dust. But we have very early copies of, of, the, um, of the documents that we believe to be very close to what the autographs say. So, so when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we'll sometimes say it's inerrant in the original autographs, and by that we mean the original copy. But as soon as you begin making handwritten copies, 
mistakes creep in. People were human beings, and copyists always make mistakes. So, so no two copies are identical. So our goal is to get back as close as possible to the original autograph. Even though we'll never get exactly it, we we can get to a very very high percentage of what it what it originally said. So. What are the main differences then between the autographs, which you touched on, mm-hmm. and what we call manuscripts? Many of us are familiar with that term, manuscripts. Right. Yep. A manuscript, the word manuscript, that's another technical term, actually. It means a handwritten document. And so before the period of printing press and, and copy machines, everything was handwritten. So everything was a manuscript. And so everything that followed the autograph, the autograph was a manuscript, obviously it was handwritten as well, but everything that followed that is called a manuscript. So we have diverse, many, many different manuscripts of different books of the New Testament. None of them are the autograph, but by looking at them and comparing them, we can assume and determine what the autograph actually said. This is what they do with any any ancient work of literature, is, is we have multiple copies. We don't know precisely what the original said, but we can determine with a very high degree of probability uh, what the original said. So manuscripts, there's no, no two manuscripts are identical, yet we have enough, certainly, to compare. And using a science and art known as textual criticism, we can, we can work back um, um, and our goal is to actually get to what the autograph said. There's always, you know, there, it's never going to be perfect, but it's, but we we believe we can get very close. Excellent. And so that leads me to my next point. Our Bibles, our, our present-day Bibles, are based on the manuscripts. And so these manuscripts, historically speaking, uh, when I read various books about, manuscripts, uh, many of them divide them between uh, the Western Byzantine and Alexandrian texts. What does that mean? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's actually a fourth family sometimes that's identified as the Caesarean as well. Right. And let me tell you how we come up with these families, basically. We've got lots of manuscripts. There's something like 5,000 handwritten copies of, of parts of the of the Greek New Testament. Now, in this case, we're just talking when, we, when we talk about those four categories: Alexandrian, Byzantine, Western, and Caesarean. You're just talking about the New Testament. So, the, the Old Testament is a different animal. That's right. a different uh, discussion. But we're talking about the New Testament. And basically, what what scholars do is they compare these manuscripts and they realize that that many of them are related to each other. By that I mean they have readings that are very similar to each other. And they assume from that that they were copied in generally basically the same basic area. Um, and by comparing these collect- these various manuscripts, groups of manuscripts, you can say, okay, here's one set. Let's call them Family A. Here's another set. Let's call it Family B. Here's another set. Let's call it Family C. And then what they name them um, after the areas they believe they were primarily copied in. And um, they determine that by looking at early church writers, early church fathers, we call them, and comparing how they quote Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so if one particular family, let's say family A, looks a lot like the way Clement of Alexandria um, quoted Scripture, then it, they come to think that probably that family arose especially in Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt area. Mm-hmm. And so they've named these families after geographical areas. So the Western text is Rome and North Africa. 
the Byzantine text is Turkey, Byzantium, what that area over there. The Alexandrian text is primarily copied in Egypt down there. Um, now, that doesn't mean necessarily that those manuscripts were only from there, but that these are just general names for families where they think that, that generally these these manuscripts were copied. So so there, there are different families of manuscripts, and by that we mean by families, we simply mean they're related. They're, they're obviously similar to each other, probably copied from one another, in other words. Thank you for that. So now we have manuscripts located in various places. Then how do, we, how do they go about transmitting or getting the information from the manuscripts to... Uh, in a format that would allow us, let's say, English speakers yeah. to to know the Word of God. W- what does the word transmission mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And the word transmission means just the transmission of the text is how it was passed down. Um, let's say you're in the church um, at Philippi and you get a letter from Paul, and other churches in Greece want a copy of that letter. So you cop you make a copy of it. You keep the original. You make a copy and you pass that on. And then they make copies and pass it on, and they make copies and pass it on. And through the centuries, copies have been made and passed on. And like we said, when a copy is made, mistakes can creep in. Now, we think the Holy Spirit certainly protected the text to a certain degree, but we do know because no two texts are, are exactly identical. So that's the process of transmission. Textual critics then try to say, okay, let's see, how can we work back? backwards to try and get back to that original copy that Paul wrote to Philippi or, or whatever. Um, and we use what, what we referred to before as the, the, the science and art of textual criticism. Uh, we do that based on what manuscripts we think are the oldest. That's one factor to consider. We also think what, what manuscripts um, tend to indicate the most copyist errors or the co- most copyist changes. And there are certain rules of textual criticism, the way that copyists tended to make mistakes, that we can bring to bear those rules and try to determine what are the earliest and most reliable readings. Um, the great majority of textual critics consider the Alexandrian family to be generally, not always, but generally the most reliable for two reasons. One, because um, it's the oldest family. The, our oldest manuscripts tend to be Alexandrian. But also, when we look at the Alexandrian text, it seems to be recording something that is earlier than the others. The other, the other copies tend to smooth out difficulties, mm-hmm. um, or they tend to harmonize things, um, things that a copyist would likely to, to do. So, so you're looking for sort of patterns of how copyists either accidentally or intentionally change text and trying to work backwards to get back to the original. Does that make sense? It does make, it makes sense to me. <laughs> I'm hoping our, our listeners yeah. are paying attention, but you, it, it makes sense, Good. and I do appreciate that. So um, just so we can clarify for our listeners, sure. even though there may be some errors in uh, tra- uh, transcribing from one manuscript to another, can you touch on how uh, that is is not in conflict with with God's message sure, to us. Ab- absolutely. Well, for one thing, um, no doctrine, um, no teaching of Scripture is in doubt is brought into doubt by any textual variant. In other words, let's say the ver- for the most part, the variants are are small issues of spelling, of grammar, of tense. 
that don't make much difference, really, in terms of the meaning of the text. Got it. Um, not only that, but no doctrine of Scripture, let's talk about, say, the deity of Christ or right. something like that. No doctrine of Scripture is taught in just one passage. You know, we, we, we bring these, we, we learn these doctrines from the whole of Scripture. And so just because maybe one passage doesn't have the word Lord in front of Lord Jesus, let's say, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't Lord, because he's called Lord a thousand other times exactly. in the New Testament. So no doctrine of the Church is brought into doubt by these textual, textual variants. Thank you. That, that, that's the first point. The other, the other point is that we have better manuscript attestation for, of the New Testament than any work of ancient literature. So if we can believe anything in terms of that we have Homer or um, any of these ancient writers um, even even close to what they wrote, we have even much better um, documents of the New Testament. We have much a much better text textual attestation of the New Testament than that. So we can we can definitely trust our New Testament. Thank you. Now, what is the meaning of the word hermeneutics? Yeah. <laughs> well, hermeneutics it's, it's from a Greek word hermeneuo, which means to interpret basically. So hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. Uh, textual criticism would be a part of that. In other words, determining the original text of Scripture would be the first part. We've got to know what the words are, what the Greek and Hebrew words are. That's what textual criticism does. Um, but then we have to take those words and understand what they mean, um, and how we translate them in English, and then how we interpret that that, that translation. And so hermeneutics is, is the whole process of interpreting the meaning of the text and, and then applying its truths to today. So then, what you're saying is that there is a method by which we need to consider when we're trying to study the Bible or read the Bible. We just can't open up the Bible, let gravity pull it to a page, and <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 start our reading from there. Well, that that's exactly right. And one of the things one of the things I say, and it's not me, but um, Fee and Stewart in their book How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Say uh, one of the reasons the Bible is so hard to understand for some people is because it wasn't written to us. Right. And it certainly wasn't. It was written, I mean, who was the letter to the Romans written to? It was written by Paul 2,000 years ago to the church in Rome. Now, it's not, it may not have been written to us, but it is certainly for us. It's God's Word for us. Right. But we've got to first understand what it meant to the original readers. Right. Because this was a letter written by Paul to those readers. It wasn't written to us, which means not everything, not every command in there might actually apply to us. Paul may be commanding the Romans, for example, to do certain things that may not apply culturally in our, in our context. So hermeneutics is learning to discern what it meant to them in the first part, what the meaning was for them, and right. then determining what the meaning is for us, what God would want us to do based on what he told the Romans through his Apostle Paul. And so that's a twofold process. We sometimes talk about it as a bridge model, where we, we're on one side of a bridge in the original context, the author and the readers are on the other. We've got to cross that bridge of time, cross that bridge of language, cross that, cross that bridge of culture back to the original context to understand what it meant for them in their context. Then we've got to say, okay, now I understand the meaning. Now how does that meaning, what God was saying to them, apply to me today? We've got to bring that message then back across the bridge to ourselves and find out how God is speaking to us today. And that can be a challenge. And this is why we come across disputes um, on various issues that 
Christians disagree about because we're trying to discern what, how much of what was given to them is for us. Right. Uh, Jesus commanded his disciples to wash their, each other's feet. Well, most churches don't practice foot, foot washing on a regular basis anyway, right. because they believe that was a command specifically for a first century context. And we apply that truth in different ways. We serve each other, just like that's an act of service, but we serve each other in different ways. So that's hermeneutics, determining how we apply Jesus' command to the disciples to wash each other's feet in our cultural context. So how did we um, get the Bible in its present form? Because we, we, we go from autographs, which no, mm-hmm. we no longer have any uh, extant versions left, and then we move on to manuscripts, and now we all have these shiny leather Bibles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how, how does one go about getting the Bible uh, in its present form the way that we have it yeah. today? Well, obviously, there's various steps. There, mm-hmm. there was the original step, which was the inspiration itself, and that's a bit of a mystery. How did God communicate through human authors uh, to write his message? Well, you know, for the most part, we don't think he dictated into their ear, because the styles reflect the various different authors' styles. So it's coming through their minds and personalities. So there's the very first step, is getting that text into the original Hebrew and Greek, from God's mind into the author's words on the text. Then, of course, we've got what we just talked about, the transmission of the text, passing down copies after copies after copies, until we determine what is the the original Greek and Hebrew. And I have on my desk a copy of, of a Greek text and a copy of a Hebrew text that, that we believe are as close as possible. But then none of us, for the most part, go to church with our Greek and Hebrew text. We go to church with our English Bible. So you have to take that English or Greek text and then translate it into English. And translation itself is a science and an art, just right. like textual criticism is. And once we've translated it in English, then we print it in our Bibles. And, and those verses and those chapters were all added later. All of that punctuation, the commas and the periods, <laughs> all of that is a matter of interpretation. And so all of that goes into the process of moving from the original inspiration of Scripture to what we actually read on the page. So those chapters and the... Uh, verse numbers are not inspired. No, they're not, um, <laughs> even though sometimes we think they are. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, it's, it's, they're helpful to help us find things. Right. You know, especially if you say, you know, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. It's nice if people have a 15 you know, <laughs> in there. But in fact, the original readers did not have them. These, are, these were not um, chapter and verses. You know, they were letters, and they were... Uh, poetry, and it was narrative or story, and so, um, yeah, it, there's, there's been a few Bibles that have eliminated the chapters and verses to try, look, try and make it look more like it was intended to look. Right. So we only have about three minutes left, and uh, prayerfully we can continue this on another episode. Sure. Uh, but my qu- last question to you is, can you just tell our readers your association uh, if there is any, with the new international version of uh, of the Bible. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm part of the committee, the committee on um, for Bible translation, uh, the CBT Committee for Bible Ch- Translation, is the committee that that oversees the new international version. When the NIV was produced, it was produced in the 1960s, and it was produced by about a hundred scholars, Hebrew and Greek scholars, all evangelical Hebrew and Greek scholars who originally produced it. But ever since, there's been a committee of about 15 who have overseen it. 
um, as language changes, as there's some discoveries or breakthroughs um, in better understanding of what the original text means, every good Bible translation is going to go through periodic revisions. And the CBT, the Committee for Bible, the Committee on Bible Translation, is the committee that oversees um, the text and it gradually introduces those updates. We meet every year for a week, um, and people, uh, scholars, and pastors, and others um, suggest improvements, suggest changes. We consider those changes and and vote on them. Um, to get something changed takes a 75 or 70 percent um, vote, so it's a very high level. You 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 know we have to be very certain that this is something that will actually improve the text. Um, but but yeah, so I've been on that committee for about seven years or so. Um, this the CBT um, Committee on Bible Translation. Well, Dr. Strauss, thank you so much for your time and. Again, it's my prayer that we can finish the uh, continuing or subsequent questions on the next episode. And we, again, thank you for carving out time to share with our listeners about how we got our Bible in its present form. And we thank you so much for the hard work that you do on behalf of God's church. Well, thank you. My pleasure to be with you, Perseus. Okay, I'll be in touch. All right, bye now. We want to thank Dr. Strauss so much for his time and sharing with us he is a man full of knowledge, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's definitely an asset to Christendom. So please, uh, look at your Bibles, read your Bibles, investigate your Bibles, and study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman or woman who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of God. And we are doing it. Uh, with gentleness, and with respect. It is God's will that we all are able to defend the truth of his word. So I pray that you are willing to do for the truth what others do for a lie. And as always, if the Holy Spirit is pressed it on your heart, please consider becoming a sponsor of the show. And we are uh, in need of your help, so please give financially And may the Lord continue to bless all of you as we continue to share the gospel, live it out, and praise his holy name for all that he's done. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take or art to make or perhaps businesses to build, It's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, 
write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.